0: If you'll remain standing for the reading of the word this morning, a reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. This same night he arose and took his two wives, his female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Jesus, we are in awe that you give us this word, that it is a gift from you. And so I pray this morning that we would when we sit in it that we would hear and listen that we would be changed because of the beauty that you've given us. We pray for Brandon, pray that the spirit would move through him, that he would teach us well this morning. And pray that the Spirit would move through us as we listen. In Christ's name, amen.
1: You may be seated. When uh, our church was younger, we had uh, partnered with Mission to the World in uh, La Ceiba, Honduras. And o- over a couple of two years, I led a couple of teams uh, on mission trips where. We traveled to La Saba, and we served in the community there. So visiting a, a developing nation, it can be kind of eye-opening for uh, an American. See, I had always kind of thought of myself as poor, or at least, you know, not wealthy. Because uh, we lived modestly at the time uh, we were on one income. We were kind of going from paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, never quite having enough to, like, pay for everything that was needed. Uh, but when I was in Honduras, I came face to face with real poverty. Uh, th- these are people who were living in homes that were, were made out of tarps. And the roads around their homes were, were filled with trash that was ankle deep. Uh, The people there, they would prefer that their children spend the day panhandling rather than going to school. Uh, And they turned to things like prostitution and gangs and crime as a way of making money. And they turned to drugs as a way of coping with the despair. You know, beyond the slums, which was kind of the worst of it, just even in the the general areas, uh, people... Uh, were poor. Uh, I remember one day uh, we saw like a whole family of like five people all riding on a motorcycle at the same time. It was the only transportation they had. You see, people there went without clean water, without access to medical care, and without hope of getting a paying job. Now, this isn't a missions message, so you know just I will say this, uh, when I was there, I saw God moving. Uh, God is alive in such places and he's drawing people to himself and he's building his church and his kingdom there and he's providing for his people in extraordinary ways in the midst of uh, the worst of circumstances. But for me personally, what I kind of took away from this was was something life-changing and it's this, God showed me that I am wealthy, that I am rich. And it's true. Uh, The people in Honduras, they will literally take their whole family and walk 1,600 miles uh, to get to the U.S. and try to come here and start a better life, a life like mine and a life like yours. And the reality is if, if you have access to clean water and plenty of food and electricity and a vehicle and health care and shoes, then you are better off than millions and millions of people around the world. By any objective standard, just, just about everyone in this room is wealthy, and, and some of us extremely so. And this was an important revelation for me, because... Uh, Not because I'm called to the mission field and I need to move to Honduras. Uh, That's not. Uh, God has specifically called me here in Lawrenceville, and, and I'm clear on that. But it was important for me to understand that I am rich because the Bible has some very specific guidance for the wealthy that I used to ignore because I thought it didn't apply to me. Let me read you a couple of them. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, uh, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age... Now, in the past, I would encounter these verses, and I would say, whew, thank goodness I'm not rich. Those, I don't have to worry about that. But now I realize that the blessing that God has given me as, you know, a middle-class American, it comes with a few caveats. See, if we're all rich people, then we kind of have to ask ourselves a very challenging question, which is this. Have I truly entered the kingdom of heaven? Have I somehow managed to squeeze my camel's body through the eye of a needle? Have I set my hopes on something more certain than my riches and taken hold of that which is truly life? Last week, we talked a bit about the everyday persecution that we should expect as as followers of Jesus. We talked about how Jesus calls us to do the impossible so that we must rely upon him. And in today's passage, we're going to see that this is kind of the second part of an overall message of how God does the impossible in our lives. It is, of course, impossible for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. But do you remember the context of of that verse, A rich man had come to Jesus and said, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, go and sell all that you have, then come follow me. And the man, seeing that the cost was too high, he went away saddened. Why is it difficult for rich people, you know, like us? Why why is it difficult for us to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's not because the rich are more evil than poor people. It's not because God is angry that some people are rich and some people are not. In fact, God's word tells us clearly that God determines who is poor and who is rich. God does not exclude anyone from the kingdom of heaven because they are poor or because they are rich. But it is easier for poor people to rely upon God for salvation because they really don't have anything else to rely upon. Rich people like us, too often we find our certainty in our riches. See, we have the means to be self-reliant and independent. These are things that we value. And if you're at all like me, Far, far too often, we don't even think about our need to be dependent on God until our sense of livelihood is somehow threatened. Our passage this morning, it's about Jacob. He's right on the edge of the promised land. He's about to enter in. And I think we're going to see that it's parallel to our own entering in to the kingdom of heaven. And what I want to do this this morning is take a look at the story and make sure we kind of understand what is actually happening in the life of Jacob, and then maybe just take a little bit deeper look and see how it's relevant to our own lives and our own desire to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our big idea today, it's uh, before self-reliant people can enter the kingdom of heaven, they need to become people who rely solely on God. So, Jacob was self-reliant. You know, we've been looking at Jacob's life for a few weeks now, and so I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but this is what we know. We know that Jacob was what we would call a self-made person. He had scrapped and schemed to get everything that he had. And from birth, he had been told that God intended to bless him, that he was God's chosen one. But he took it upon himself to try and bring that blessing about, to make it into a reality. And he did that by stealing and by manipulating others and also by doing a lot of hard work. He lived by the notion. We, we might say it uh, nowadays, we might say something like, um, God helps those who help themselves, Right? That's not in the Bible, by the way. God does often call us to participate in what he's doing, but his provision and his blessing for us are always a gift. Jacob wasn't waiting for God to fulfill his promises, he was getting busy and he was building a life and he was dealing with whoever stood in his way in ways that were often quite devious. Where we are in this story, uh, Jacob has just learned that his brother Esau has amassed an army, and he's coming to meet him, and Jacob believes that his brother intends to murder him. And though God had sent an army of angels to encamp with Jacob, he was afraid. Now, he did pray, and he did ask God for deliverance, but he was mainly relying upon himself, on his riches, actually. Actually by sending this enormous bribe forward to meet his brother along the way. This is an amount uh, of, of gifts that he's sending. That would, It would be something that someone might have paid as a tribute to a king. It was a ridiculous sum. Geographically, we find Jacob, he's right along the river Jabbok. This river is the border of the promised land. Jacob was mere steps away from being where God had called him to go. But he couldn't sleep. In the dark of the camp of that night, when his mind would wander, he was kept up with doubt and with worry. Have you ever been there? You're tired and you're lying in bed, but your mind just won't let you be at peace. And in that quiet moment, that's where those doubts creep in. Is God real? Does he really love me? Have I done enough to please him? Am I really a Christian? If I die tonight, will I awaken God's presence in heaven? And this uncertainty, it can affect all the ordinary things we worry about as well. About work and school, about our family and friends. In the night, that's when Satan likes to creep in and mess with us. He likes to whisper in our ear, God doesn't really care. God is not really reliable. He won't be your help in your time of need. I think this is where Jacob was. I think he was probably thinking about God's promises and he was thinking about his plan to appease his brother. He was thinking about that army that's like less than a day away that's coming to get him. No doubt he's thinking in the morning that army's gonna, that army's gonna arrive right when we're crossing the river. And so in his fear, he... I think he does something kind of drastic. He gets up, he gets everyone up, he takes all that he has, and he's like, you guys, you guys have to get across the river now. All his family, livestock, all of his possessions, he sends it all across the river in the dead of the night. This isn't like a bridge with lights on it, right? This is crossing water in darkness. This would no doubt be dangerous in the daytime. And yet he's risking everything because he's figuring, well, this is less dangerous than trying to cross while being attacked. And so he's there and he's watching as all of his life is moving across. And for a moment, I think he felt better. He's done something. Like he's done something, at least for this moment, everything is safe. And then he finds that he's all alone. So he's been focused on that impending threat that's in front of him. And now he looks around and he finds himself without any possessions, without any kind of protection. It's just him there on the side of the river in the black of the night. And then out of the darkness steps a mysterious figure, an unknown man. And he immediately attacks him. And as he's grappling with this stranger in the dark, no doubt he's thinking, is this Esau? Is this one of Esau's men? Is this uh, some bandit or robber? And he's fighting for his life. And this is a fierce battle. It goes on and on for hours until finally the sun starts to come up. And this seems to be a, a pretty evenly matched fight. Neither man has the upper hand. But it seems that Jacob's assailant, he kind of has this trick up his sleeve. Because when he sees that he's not going to prevail, he just reaches out and touches Jacob's hip. And his hip comes out of his socket, crippling him. In that moment, I think that Jacob really begins to understand what's happening. He's like, "Whoa, this is not Esau. This is not some stranger. I'm wrestling with someone who is supernatural." And so Jacob does a curious thing. He grabs hold of him even tighter. Even though he knows like the the it's over. I can't win this fight now that my hip is is gone. He just won't let go. And he forces the mystery man finally to speak. And he says, let me go, for the day has broken. Now, I read a lot of of commentary about this this week. This statement uh, has created all kinds of strange debate among biblical scholars. See, now, there's some scholars, uh, you know, there's people who study the Bible, you know, and they don't actually believe it's true. And, And the people who think, like, this is fiction... They, they think that, that this little statement is evidence that Jacob was maybe battling a wood sprite or some kind of a river god, right? And then if the sun came up, they would be harmed. And so, so time was short for them. Now, some of the Christian scholars, the people who think this stuff is true, they say like, hey, this is God that he's wrestling and God knows that if the sun comes up and Jacob sees his face, then he will surely die. But other Christian scholars, uh, these are the really good ones. I can tell because they agree with me. They think that this man is God, but, but really, he, this is what he's saying. Hey, we've kind of been doing this for a little while. And Esau's just over the hill, right? So um, let's just call it a draw. Let's just be done. But Jacob, he's holding on, right? He's not, he's refusing to stop. And now he's like demanding a blessing. Now, maybe this is just because he's stubborn and this is how Jacob has always been, try, trying to get something in every situation. But There is some evidence that there were were ancient stories in the time of Jacob. Stories about mortals, you know, human beings who would challenge uh, the supernatural beings and then uh, demand some kind of blessing from them. I don't know what he was thinking. Um, But what's important is that Jacob realized realizes that whoever he's wrestling is his superior. See, blessings come from God, or blessings come from a matriarch or, or a patriarch, or somebody who is in some position of authority. And so it, I think it's important that we understand in this moment, Jacob is, to some extent, humbled. But he's not yet ready. The man is not yet ready to give him a blessing, but I I think maybe he sees that Jacob is not yet ready to receive a blessing. So instead of doing that, he asks him a question. He says, what is your name? What a a weird moment for introductions, (laughs) right? It's a little bit of a strange time for small talk. So what's your name? How often do you come to Jabbok? Where'd you learn that wicked pile driver wrestling move? (laughs) Seriously, why is God asking Jacob his name? He knows his name. He knows the name of the the person that he attacked in the dead of the night. In fact, he had already written Jacob's name in the book of life. God is not on a fact-finding mission here. He's about to do something amazing in Jacob's life. It's kind of easy for us to miss it because, see, for us, names are just identification. It's how we tell each other apart. But for ancient Semitic people, names were considered something much, much deeper. They were an indication of a person's identity. And Jacob... In Hebrew, it's Yaqab. It means deceiver. The prophet Jeremiah uses the word that is Jacob's name. In Jeremiah 9.4, he says this, Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver. Every brother is Jacob. Every brother is Jacob. Imagine growing up with that name, that name meaning deceiver. See, at this moment, God is not asking Jacob for his identification. He's asking him for a confession. Who are you? Who are you really at your core? And Jacob, he merely says, Yaqab. The deceiver. And it's all that needs to be said. I am a man who cheated my brother and deceived my father and my uncle. And I have been this way since the womb when I emerged into this world grasping onto my brother's heel. Even now, I have this scheme in motion to bribe my brother. I am Jacob, the deceiver. And though I'm not worthy to be in your presence, you attacked me, and so I'm not letting go. You know, around here, we sometimes ask people a strange question. And, and you know, it's not a theologically sound question. But we say, like, what would you say if you got to heaven and Jesus stood there at the gate and asked, why should I let you in? You know, we ask this question because the answer tells us, like, what you believe about salvation and how it works. But what if you got to heaven's gate and Jesus came out and wrestled you to the ground and he said to you, What is your name? What would you say if you had to choose just a word or two to say who you really are at your core? What Talent or 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 possession or or treasure or trait or sin or defect of character or idol. What is it that you tend to put your certainty in? What would you say to Jesus? I think this is the position that Jacob found himself in. And, and it brings me to my next point: that Jacob came to the end of himself. Now, having made this confession, he was ready. And the man, the man tells him, you are no longer Jacob. From this time on, you will be known as Yisrael. More than anything, the fact that, that this man renamed Jacob confirms that he is in fact God. John Piper said something interesting There is a big difference between me and God. When I name someone, I don't have the power or the authority to make the person fit the name. I give names in hope and prayer that my sons will become what their names imply. But God has the right and the power to cause anyone he names to become what the name implies. The names he gives are sure indicators of the destiny of those he names. God says, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the reason he gives for why he chose the name Israel, which means God strives. The blessing is not so much that Jacob no longer has to be known as Jacob. He no longer has to be known as the deceiver. The blessing is that God has given him a whole new destiny. He's a new man. He's a new creation. The life of Jacob the deceiver has come to the end and now begins the life of Israel, one who strives with God. And so Jacob names this place, he names it Peniel or Penuel, which means the face of God. Because you know, he wanted to remember that this was where he had uh, he said, seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I think here we're seeing some evidence that, that there's a new faith inside of Jacob. He sees his deliverance. He knows now that his prayer has indeed been answered. Next week, Ryan's going to preach about when Esau and Jacob come together, and and we'll see Jacob is no longer hiding in the back, looking for a way out, cowering in fear. No, he approaches his brother boldly and confidently with the confidence of one who has put their trust in the Lord. Jacob had, from before he was born, been the chosen one of God. And yet, as Jacob, he tried to seize that blessing in his own strength by deceit and manipulation. But now as Israel, he simply receives it as a blessing from God, as a free gift. His new name is a constant reminder of the plan that God has for him. This plan to become a nation. And his permanent disability is a constant, albeit painful, reminder that when he met God face to face, he finally found someone that he could not overpower in his own strength. Jacob, the deceiver, found that God quite literally stood in his way of him entering the promised land. Israel, the one who strives with God, is welcomed into the promised land with God's blessing. And so we see that every brother and sister is Jacob. My friends, if, if you are striving in your, in your own strength, in the certainty of your riches, then you should have every expectation that, that the Lord Jesus will be standing in your way, barring the path to the kingdom of heaven. Because we're just like Jacob, And it's only when we get to the end of ourselves that we can finally enter in and rest in the free gift that is God's grace and mercy. Jesus said in his own words, Luke 13, someone had asked him, uh, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And this is what Jesus said to them. Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last this is the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, right? But what does he mean by that narrow door? So we think about the narrow door, and it brings to mind the narrow path. That we think about, we, uh, like we say, we got to stay on the straight and narrow. You know, as long as, as I'm good enough, if I don't veer too much to the right, I don't veer too much to the left, then I'm going to be fine. Stop thinking like this. (laughs) Stop thinking like this, Jacob. You deceive yourself into thinking you can earn your passage into the kingdom of heaven through your own works. I'm telling you, the narrow door, it's even more narrow than you think. There's only one way through the narrow door, and that is straight through Jesus John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In fact, it's even more narrow than that. Jesus said in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. So I find it interesting that Jesus says that we have to strive to enter through the narrow door. So which is it? Do we have to work hard or not? I think our passage today helps us see the answer. We have to strive for God's blessing like Jacob did. But unlike Jacob, we, we understand clearly what that ultimate blessing is. It's Jesus himself. What do we do to be saved, right? The Philippian jailer said, what do I have to do to be saved? And the answer was very simple. Believe in Jesus. That's it. So, so, so why does Jesus call this striving? Because even though it's simple, and even though it's completely free, it's so incredibly difficult to do, to rely on Jesus alone. Jesus alone, solus Christus. See, we have to be like Jacob. We have to grab hold of him and never let go. But before we can do that, we have to empty our hands All those things that we put our faith in other than Jesus our talent and our skills, our money, our relationships, our plans, our politics, our beauty, our youth, our health, our kids, our spouse, our job, our dreams all of these things, they're good things. They're good and wonderful blessings from the Lord. We have to let go of them. And we have to cling to Jesus alone instead. Like Jacob who sent his whole life across the river, right? That's what we have to do. That's how we strive. It's simple. It's impossible. Did I mention? It's impossible. But remember last week... Jesus tells us that we should abide in him, right? Like, a, like branches being grafted into a vine. Jesus says when we're in him, then we can do all things because with Jesus, all things are possible. So Christian, what does this mean for you? We understand about the narrow gate. Well, our Our striving is to be constantly remembering. If you're like me, you daily go back to your riches. You have to be reminded again and again and again that there is no certainty there. This is how you abide in him. You've got to read his word until you know what it says. We've got to be in the word so that we know what Christ has done for us. And and then you've got to spend some time with that knowledge. It's, It's got to move from here to here. You've got to be able to consider it to be the truth. And then you kind of have to act on that by presenting your members to him as instruments of righteousness and not of unrighteousness. And if this sounds familiar, it's because this is Romans 6. In fact, that's my challenge to you this week is read Romans 6. Read it and see. Know, consider, present. This is how we appropriate the power of His Holy Spirit. This is how we abide in Him. My prayer for all of us is that we will not let the wealth and the riches that we have been blessed with as Americans that we will not let those become the thing that keep us from being able to fit through that narrow door. Lay it down and come on through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am in awe of your word. I'm in awe of the, the plan that you had in Jacob's life, the methods that you have employed They're so personal. And Lord, I thank you that you have have wrestled me to the ground a number of times in my life until I've come to the end of myself and I'm willing to say, it's you alone, Jesus. Lord, I I pray that, that that would be the story of everyone in this room, that we came to the end of ourselves, that we came to realize that we cannot do it in our own strength, that we are in need of you to save us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us to watch one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.